Well, if you're a news junkie like I am, you no doubt have noticed that the media loves it whenever there's a Christian hypocrite, right? Churches, churches that would normally get no press suddenly get front-page attention because a pastor has stumbled. And you know, it's become so common that it's a common refrain now. Whenever we share Christ with somebody, they say, I knew so-and-so who was a Christian, and boy, was he a hypocrite. It's become so common that many in the church have started to concede that Christians are really just sinners like everybody else, right? You're a non-Christian sinner. I'm a Christian sinner. But in essence, we're both sinners. But is that really a true characterization? Is there really no distinct quality of holiness that we should expect from a Christian? Should we expect believers to live holy lives? See, I think there's a a rampant confusion today on the topic of holiness. Let's face it, all of us here in the church know somebody or um, have known somebody for whom the only discernible difference between them and an unbeliever is where they park their car on Sunday morning. And when you ask them about holiness, they go on and on about how they're free in Christ. But then you'll find others who say, no, 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 holiness as believers is not only our duty, it is necessary if you are to be saved at all. So who's right? Well, the answer has to do with the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification, and that's what, we'll be looking, that's what we'll be looking at today. Actually, our lesson today is extremely simple. It's not nearly as complicated as that big name would make it seem. So simple that by the end of our time today, I think you'll agree with me that all we really needed to know about sanctification, we learned in kindergarten. But first, let's define our terms. You know, one of the most important things that a Christian can learn in the beginning of their Christian walk, is the stages of salvation. There's three stages, right? Justification, sanctification, and glorification. The first stage is justification. Justification is to be declared righteous in a legal sense. This is a one-time transaction by God where he declares you to be innocent of your sins and have the righteousness of Christ. This is an instantaneous event upon your conversion, and it is permanent. Justification utterly removes any penalty of sin, right? But let me ask you, does it remove immediately the power of sin from your lives? Yes or no? No. That happens gradually in the second stage, sanctification. Sanctification, then, is the lifelong process of being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. In sanctification, a believer's life ought to see progressively decreasing frequency of sin and increasing frequency of holiness. Now, this part is critical to understand. With justification, justification is by faith alone with no effort from you. But sanctification is different in that it requires your effort working through faith. You get that? Sanctification does not happen apart from your work. 
For example, when the scripture commands us in Philippians 2.12 to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, it is speaking in terms of sanctification. Now, sanctification, the Bible tells us, will never be complete in this life. It will never be perfect in this life. And that's where that final stage, glorification, comes in. When Jesus returns and we get our new resurrected bodies, they will be utterly free from any effect of sin. That's glorification. So we're justified in an instant, we're sanctified throughout our lifetime, and then we're glorified in an instant. So none of what I just told you now is too controversial. But let me ask you this. Can you ever have one of those without the other two? Yes or no? No. They're a package deal. They're a package deal. You have one or you have none. You can't only be justified and not sanctified. And you can't be justified and not eventually glorified. One of the best verses to see all three is in Philippians 1.6. Let me read that to you. Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who, what? Began a good work in you, will, what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? You see, all three are there. God began a good work in you. There's justification. He's perfecting it. That's sanctification. And on the day of Christ Jesus, it will be completed. That's glorification, right? All right, let's back up. Why all of the theological pain this morning? Because I want you to understand that many theological errors that we see in the world around us can at their essence be boiled down to a failure to keep these concepts distinct. What do I mean? Let me give you some examples. There's something called the holiness movement. This is subscribed to by, for instance, many movements, but but, um, specifically the Church of the Nazarene you might have heard of, which teach that you can achieve a state of sinless perfection in this life. In fact, when I was living in Los Angeles about uh, 10 years ago, I met a person who told me he hadn't sinned for many years, not even once. And you see, what they've done is confuse the doctrine of sanctification with glorification, when they ought to have kept them separate. Here's a second example. The Catholic Church. Their fundamental error can be boiled down to a merging of sanctification works into justification. Let me read you a quote from Phil Johnson, who explains it much better than I could. Quote, According to Catholic teaching, until we are truly and fully perfected by sanctification, our justification is not complete. In other words, they teach that justification is a process dependent on sanctification. And that's why they sell indulgences, because their theology doesn't permit Christians to enjoy the full and free forgiveness of justification. That's also why they invented the doctrine of purgatory, to explain how people who die in a state of imperfection can gain entrance to heaven. Purgatory is the place they invented to explain how sinners' own practical righteousness the righteousness of sanctification can be perfected enough to please God, end quote. You see, the the doctrine of sanctification and and the merging of the doctrine of sanctification and justification, in this case, adds works to your justification, which 
then rises to the level of a damning heresy. Believing this will keep you from being saved. That's deadly. But I want to give you one last example before we get to the text. And um, This error is a bit more subtle, but I believe it's extremely relevant to us as a church. While one might say that Catholic theology allows what belongs in the world of sanctification to bleed into the world of justification, it is also possible to do the opposite and allow what belongs in the world of justification to bleed into the world of sanctification. The error I'm speaking of is known by many names, cross-centered sanctification, gospel-driven sanctification, the free grace movement. But I think that the, the name that is catching on is the hyper-grace movement, so that's what I'll call it. The hyper-grace movement was started and driven in recent years by some very big names in evangelicalism, many of whom we esteem very highly and whose names you would instantly recognize. And has been for some time causing a lot of confusion and division within evangelicalism. All you need to do is to do a quick Google search and you'll see hundreds of pages of the raging battle over it. And I want you to know, this isn't just an insignificant secondary issue. When, as Jerry Ragg said in his 2014 Shepherds Conference session on this topic, which, by the way, I highly recommend, Christians or churches are dividing over this. It's not splitting hairs. And on some occasion, I just say that your elders have even noticed some seeds of it appearing within our own congregation. So I think it's worth spending a few minutes here just to talk about it. So what are the battle lines? The hyper-grace position is very strong on the doctrine of justification. There's no problem there. But if you listen to hyper-grace preaching enough, you will eventually start to notice an emphasis on man's depravity and God's grace in the gospel, but little or no emphasis on confession, repentance, or righteousness. That's because they erroneously extend the no-work condition of our justification to sanctification. Jeremiah Johnson sums it up this way, speaking of the hyper-grace movement, quote, They argue that salvation releases us from any expectation of obedience to God's law and that God's grace, listen, dissolves guilt and diffuses conviction of sin in the believer's life. End quote. See, to the hyper-grace movement, the biggest problem in a believer's life is not that they're in sin, because that sin, that sin has been paid for in Christ. Rather, the biggest problem is the induced guilt and shame of that sin. You see? Pretty much the worst sin you can commit as a hyper-gracer is to feel any sense of guilt or shame about your sin, because that must mean you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ enough. So they say... The proper response to your feeling of sorrow, guilt, and shame is to preach the gospel to yourself over and over so that you can remind yourself of your acceptance before God. You might have heard of that. Now, I just want to make it clear that I have no problem with preaching the gospel to yourself. Reminding ourselves of the gospel and what Christ did on our behalf is a, spiritual health, a spiritually healthy and essential thing to do. But the problem that, is that hyper-gracers will hijack that, which is a good thing, and over-prescribe that as the antidote to relieve themselves of every sorrow over sin and every pang of guilt. 
but merely relieving guilt by telling people to remember that their sins are paid for is dangerous. If it means that the sin itself remains undealt with. Because you see, sometimes the reason we feel concern and sorrow isn't because we haven't fully trusted in our justification. It's because our consciences are telling us that we have not repented of our sin. That's actually your conscience's God-given purpose, to get you to repent. You see, sometimes your sorrow over sin, far from being illegitimate, is, listen, actually sent by God. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians that he actually rejoiced that they were feeling sorrowful. Because their sorrow was the very thing that was leading to, re- to their repentance. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. He says, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful, what? To the point of repentance. See, we're not meant to run over our consciences with thoughts about justification. We're meant to do the work of repentance, which falls into the category of sanctification. So you see, the root error of the hypergrace movement is a bleeding of no works justification into the language of sanctification. And that's why they frequently confuse any effort exerted toward sanctification as an effort to stay saved, right? I see believers working hard for sanctification, and they shake their heads and say, why are you trying so hard to please God when he's already pleased for you about you in Christ? But see, that's totally wrong. Legitimate work demanded by sanctification has nothing to do with earning justification at all. We'll see that later on today. Yet, I want you to understand, that's frequently the charge levied by the hypergrace movement. Some common labels they'll put to this are no heart perfectionism, Phariseeism, moralism, do-goodism, works righteousness, earning brownie points with God, and the ever-dreaded charge, legalism. Now, by the way, guys, can we just, let me just step back and can we just agree for a second to stop calling things legalism that aren't actually legalism? Legalism means that you are trying to earn your salvation by your works. If you are legalistic, you are not saved. You are damned. But somehow that word has been taken and now is casually used to refer to basically anyone who is more serious about sanctification than yourselves. We say, oh, he's holding such a high standard. He's just not okay with this sin. That's so legalistic. But understand, somebody isn't legalistic just because they uphold a higher standard of righteousness than you or I prefer. Perhaps we ought to consider that maybe the real problem is that we are licentious. Well, there are many other things about the movement that we don't have time to go into today. Honestly, it's a hard movement to criticize because much of what they say is actually very good and helpful. And there are many that I respect in that movement. I don't mean to be overly critical about it. But I do think that at the root of the hypergrace movement is a misunderstanding of the nature of sanctification. So, what then is the proper understanding of sanctification? How can we properly understand sanctification without veering on one side toward legalism 
or on the other towards lawlessness. We'll see today that the Apostle Paul has dealt with this very issue through Romans chapter 6, all the way through Romans chapter 8, but we'll only be able to look at a small portion of the argument today. But I think it'll help illuminate these issues. So before we look at Romans 6, we need to get a little bit of context. And um, let's go to the text. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And we'll start there. And as we get there, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Father, as we open your word, pray, Lord, that you would illuminate it for us. Um, Help us to remain attentive to it, um, to be able to get the lessons therein into our hearts and live by them. In Christ's name, amen. So up to this point, in the first four chapters of Romans, Paul has been making the case for justification by faith, right? And in chapter 5, Paul now pauses to hammer home just how unmerited this grace is. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul told us in earlier chapters that everyone starts out at war with God. Sinful, disobedient to the law. So then how do we go from God's enemies to having peace with him? Well, Paul said in that verse that we are justified by what? By faith. Faith alone. That's it. No works, right? No merit of your own. And just in case you still need some help understanding how unmerited this grace is, Paul's purpose in verse 12 and 21, which we looked at a few months ago last time I was here, was to drive home for us this unmeritedness with an astonishing comparison. Look at verse 12. It says this, Therefore, just as through one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, last time we saw that that last phrase at the end of that verse, because all sinned, it isn't talking about us sinning individually, right? It's saying that death spread to all men because we all sinned in Adam. We all sinned with Adam when he sinned. God considers us to have participated in Adam's sin. So death then spread to all of us. Now, come to terms with that. You and I are are, are sentenced to death because of something Adam did thousands of years ago. Does that sound at all unfair to you or undeserved to you? Sure it does. You don't have any problem whatsoever understanding that you didn't merit that sin, right? And that's exactly Paul's point. Because watch what he does next. Look Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted what? Justification of life to all men. You see it? This is the parallel that Paul makes. In exactly the same way that you were condemned in Adam, that you you, you obviously see is so unmerited, you are justified to life in Christ in that same unmerited way. It's, it's, It's not because of anything you did that you were condemned in Adam. It's also not because of anything you did that you are justified in Christ. Isn't that the perfect way to drive home how devoid of work your justification is? That's how justification works. But now then, Paul examines the issue 
of how much grace there is available in Christ. How much grace is there available? Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. Verse 20 says this, The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the point is this, there is always enough grace. There's always enough grace. There's no end to the grace. As sin increases, grace simply abounds more and more without end. It superabounds to cover it. No problem at all. And here's the point. You can never out-sin God's grace. You can't do it. If you've entered by faith, your justification is totally secure, right? Now, everybody who understands this free, amazing, and inexhaustible grace will eventually ask the same question, right? You know what it is. And Paul anticipates you'll ask it. So now, put your finger down to chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul asks this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He's asking this. Why not just sin then, right? If grace is that vast and, and it's so inexhaustible, then why not just sin to our heart's content and count on grace to cover it? In fact, you might think this. Maybe this works for both of us, me and God, right? I can sin and God can then have the opportunity to show how gracious he is. Just helping him out, right? Now, I want you to, when you're looking at verse 1, I want you to notice the word continue, right? If you highlight it, just, you know, highlight that or underline it. This speaks to an, un, an, uh, sorry, an ongoing indulgence of sin, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. So I don't want you to misunderstand. The discussion we're going to have in this chapter is not, suggestion, sorry, is not suggesting that Christians will never sin, Right? Paul understands very well that sanctification is progressive and will never be finished in this life. He explains that in chapter 7. But this is talking about a continual lifestyle of sin. All right, so what's the answer to the question? Shall we live in sin or continue in sin as believers? And look at verse 2. That's the answer. May it never be. No, 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 no. That's the answer. Now, in the next verses, we're going to see Paul lay out an argument as to why it should never be. And the answer is actually dead simple. So I'll tell you the argument up front, and then we'll go and take a look at the details, okay? So here's the argument. The reason Paul gives that we are not to go on sitting is this. If you are, a, if you are truly a recipient of saving faith, you, have, you will have been joined with Christ, so you will be like him. Let me say it again. If you are truly a recipient of saving faith, you will have been joined with Christ, so you will be like him. It is impossible for you not to be like him. Of course, how can you have been joined with Christ and remain unaffected? That's like throwing yourself into a fire and not being burned, right? It's logically impossible. How could you be joined with Christ, and that not change you forever. It can't. See, when you are saved, 
It's not merely that your standing was changed before God, but your entire nature was changed as well. You were born again. You were created new. So you will act like a new creation. This concept is is not hard to understand. When my kids were a bit smaller and um, reading them some bedtime stories, one of their favorite books was the very first book of animal sounds. Some of you might have had that book on your shelves too. And in this book, on, on every page of this book, there's a different animal. On one page, there'll be a dog, and on another page, there'll be a horse. And, and on the picture of the dog, it says, the dog says woof. And then on the picture of the cat, it says, the cat says meow, right? And since I'm kind of silly, and um, sometimes I like to be silly with them, I, I throw in something there like, the cat says woof. Or, you know, the cow says ribbit, right? And um, that would just make them laugh. They would say, don't be silly, daddy. Who's ever heard of a cat that says woof? Right? Because the very idea is absurd. And see, even small children understand that every animal produces sounds according to their kind, right? That's the same idea here. This is what Jesus said in in Luke 6, 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree that produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its what? Own fruit, right? The new birth is God miraculously changing you from a bad tree to a good tree. If you have been changed to a good tree, you will bear good fruit. If you are a bad tree, then you will bear bad fruit. That's all there is to it. So those who truly belong to Christ will inevitably produce Good fruit. It can't not happen. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say it takes no effort, right? There hasn't yet been a discussion of effort. But let me tell you, sometimes that fruit only comes with great effort. But the right kind of fruit will be produced according to your nature. That's why it says in verses like 1 John 2, 3, it says this, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not, keep to his, uh, does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. That's just simply saying, good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit, right? Listen, this is the critical step to grasp for understanding sanctification. This is the fact that you need to grasp. This is the fundamental thing missed by legalists and hyper-grace advocates alike. The effort in a Christian life is not about working for your justification. It's about working to bear fruit for God according to your kind. Does that make sense? So in the next verses now, in chapter 6, we'll see six necessary implications of being united with Christ. There's six of them that Paul gives us, and then by the end, he'll give us three applications. So let's look at first the six necessary implications of being united with Christ. The first is this. Christ's death killed our old life of sin. Christ's death killed our old life of sin. Look at verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? And you might ask Paul, wait, you mean that all believers have died? What do you mean, Paul? I don't remember dying. When did that happen? Look in verse 3. Or do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been, bought, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Stop right there. This is Paul's point. Christ's death wasn't just to remove the penalty of your sin, but the person you were in Adam is spiritually killed with Christ when you first believed. That guy is dead. Now, I just need to say a few things about this because people like to take this verse to to mean that baptism is a necessary condition for salvation. And I hope you see with me within the context that it can't possibly mean that, right? First, remember how big a deal Paul made in trying to convince you that justification is by faith alone, right? And in free in, in previous chapters. It would make no sense for suddenly for him to come to chapter 6 and add baptism to that requirement. And plus, this is literally the only time the concept of baptism even comes up in the book of Romans, right here in these two verses. The book of Romans is a book which central reason for existence is to tell us about justification. If baptism was a requirement, we would have expected that to be trumpeted throughout the pages of Romans. But only these two verses is where it appears. The word faith, of course, appears everywhere, right? But not the word baptism. So Paul cannot be teaching justification by baptism. So then the question becomes, why did Paul bring up this whole baptism thing? Well, look, let's understand. Although it's not a requirement for salvation, it is the very first act of obedience, right, for every believer. It's unmistakable in the New Testament that God expects every true believer to be baptized. God expects that. See, rather than an act of justification, baptism is the first act of sanctification. It is the first act of a believer's obedience. And since Paul can assume that all believers have been baptized, he can now take this common experience of baptism to make a point. What point? Well, just as he drew, remember in chapter 5, a parallel between Adam and Christ in the last chapter, Paul now is drawing a parallel between your baptism and Christ's death and resurrection. Here's, a, here's, a, here's an interesting thing to notice. Remember in Mark 10, 38, um, James and John you know, approach Jesus and asks, hey, you know, can I sit on your right hand and the other one sit on, my, on your left? And, and you remember what Jesus said? He said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, Jesus used the word baptism to refer to his impending death, burial, and resurrection, didn't he? He likened that to a baptism. And here in Romans 6, Paul says, Listen, your baptism points to and identifies you with Jesus' baptism of death, burial, and resurrection. See, baptism isn't just some silly, arbitrary ritual, right? It means something. In your baptism, you made a statement to the whole world. I believe Jesus died, and he was buried, and he, was, and he rose again. And guess what? Now I have two. That's what you're saying. You declared that very thing in your baptism. And Paul's point is this. 
Look, guys, what I'm telling you is not new theology. You affirmed it yourself through your baptism that you have died with Christ. That's what it meant. And now Paul's point is this. Dying with Christ was not just some mere thing that has no effect on your daily life. It wasn't just a figurative type of thing. Rather, you participated in Christ's death, much in the same way that we participated in Adam's sin. And listen, just like sinning with Adam changed you to give you a nature dominated by sin in your daily life, so does dying with Christ necessarily change you to give you a nature dominated by righteousness in your daily life. That's the point. So Christ's death killed our old life of sin. But you know, having killed your old life, God does not leave you alone to live your new life in your own power. Look down in verse 4. He picks up, he says, So that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the what? Glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we come now to the second implication of being united with Christ, which is this. The glory of the Father empowers you to new life. The glory of the Father empowers you to new life. Understand the text. Paul is saying that just as the full power and glory of God raised Christ from the dead, just like that, the full power and glory of the Father now enables you to walk in a new life characterized by righteousness. This idea is repeated, right, in Ephesians 1.19, when Paul prays for the Ephesian church to remember the what? The surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. What power is he reminding of? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's in Ephesians. It's the same idea. If the same unstoppable power that raised Christ from the dead is also the one that is enabling you to walk in newness of life, then how could you possibly remain unchanged as believers? It's impossible. But there's a third implication of being united with Christ. Look down in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. See, the third implication of our union with Christ is that we enjoy the effects of our resurrection in this life. We enjoy the effects of our resurrection in this life. You say, how can that be? I don't, I've never been resurrected. I don't feel like that. See, what Paul is pointing out is that you cannot have only been united with Christ in his death and not have been united with him in his resurrection. It's both, not one or the other. Now, that word likeness, you know, why is that there? Paul is pointing out that there's one sense, of course, in which our death and resurrection was not exactly the same as Christ's. And that's obvious what that is, right? We, unlike Christ, haven't physically died yet. And we haven't been physically resurrected yet. That's in the future. But listen, in a spiritual sense, we have died and we have already been resurrected. So if that's true, then in some way, we ought to be exhibiting signs of that spiritual resurrection now. 
even if it's not yet in full the way we'll experience it when we get our glorified bodies, you see? That's the point. If you've been spiritually resurrected, you ought to show that. Now, there's a fourth implication of being united with Christ, and that is this. Your interactions with the world will no longer be characterized by sin. They'll no longer be characterized by sin. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Do you see in this verse, the old self and the body of sin, those two terms refer to the same thing. They both describe the whole person you used to be in Adam before you came to Christ, full of sin and ungodliness. That, that guy has been crucified. He's dead. But the thing about that guy was that he was characterized by a body of sin. Now, here Paul is not talking about the physical body, which obviously has not been done away with yet. Here Paul is using the term body of sin to describe how you interacted with the world. Your instrument of contact with the world. That was all of sin. You indulged the flesh. You indulged the eyes. You greedily pursued selfish ambitions and carnal desires. And if you want a picture of what that looks like, just flip back a few chapters to Romans 1, Romans 1, verse 29, which I'll read to you. It says, this is Paul's description. Filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters, uh, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but get hearty approval to those who practice them. See, that's what a body of sin looks like. That's what it looks like. But guess what? That guy is dead. He's dead. What's the result of that? Look back in verse 6 of chapter 6. Here's the result. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is what? Freed from sin. That brings us to the fifth necessary implication of your union with Christ. And that is this. We will exhibit freedom from sin's slavery. Freedom from sin's slavery. Guys, look up for a second. I just, wanna, just want you to understand this. We are no longer slaves to sin. Do you get that? When we were still under Adam, we were slaves to sin. You may not have felt as a slave, but you were. You were incapable of anything but sin continually. But now, we have been set free from sin slavery. You know what that means? You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to sin. You are free from the bondage. Did you know that sin is bondage? Slavery. Sin is a cruel master. When you were in bondage to sin, you were like a junkie addicted to crack, right? You were miserable. But you were willing to do anything for your next fix, knowing all along that'll never make you happy. 
But when you were joined with Christ, you were set free from that bondage. How, how awesome is that? Is that a cause for celebration? Yes or no? Yes. And notice, there's no hint here that there are any special exceptions. There are no special sins that are so entrenched or so powerful or so complicated that they are exempt from this. It doesn't say you are free from sin, except in these really hard, complicated cases, right? It just says this, you are freed from slavery to sin. Sin is not your master. When you sin, believers, you are no longer a victim. You can't say that somebody else made you do it. When you sin as a believer, you choose of your own will to take up the yoke of slavery again. That's what you do. The only power that sin has over you now is that power which you willingly give it. So next time you're faced with temptation, remember, Christ died so that you don't have to go down that path anymore. You don't have to. Even if you feel like you do, listen, believe this passage of Scripture by faith. And you are free, right? Well, there's one last implication of being united with Christ. And that's simply that you will act like Christ. You will act like Christ. If you are truly united with Christ, you will act like him. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's what Paul says. Now, the implication is this. If you really believe that you're going to live in union with Christ for all eternity, like if that's a desirable thing to you, wouldn't it make sense for such a person to be living now in a way that's consistent with that belief? What would that look like? Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. See, Paul is stressing in these verses the finality of Christ's death. It was a one-time death that crushed the power of sin and death never to go back to it. He took on all of our sin and then he died to it once for all. Once for all believers, once for all time, final and done. Done with death. He's left that completely behind. And what is he going to do now with his resurrected life? He's going to live it for God, right? to the glory of God in its fullest. So then what do you take away from that? This is what you take away. If you call yourselves Christians, then you too will live this way. We will view our own death to sin with ultimate finality and then live with every breath to the glory of God, right? In fact, that's exactly what Paul urges us to do next. Look at verse 11. So you... Also, must consider yourself, what? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, because you've been joined to Christ Jesus, right? There it is. All right, so at this point in our passage, Paul is now going to shift from theology to application. He's going to tell us, what are we going to do in response to the fact that we are united with Christ? How do we put this in practice. So quickly, here are three commands that Paul gives us in order for our, uh, to to be our response 
to our union with Christ. Ready? Here it goes. The first is what we just read. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Now, this is a command to believe all of what we just said about being united with Christ. The fact that our old self was killed with Christ, that the Father's glory empowers us to walk in newness of life, that our spiritual resurrection will yield visible effects, that our interactions with the world will no longer be characterized by sin, that we have been freed from sin slavery, and that we will act in Christ's likeness. See, this is a charge and urging for you to believe that. Listen, even when it doesn't feel like that's true. This is a call to faith. Believe by faith what God has said about being freed from sin and now being able to live a life for him. Believe that by faith. Don't believe the lies of the devil, the lies that say you're no different than you were before, the lies that say you can never change, the lies that say it doesn't make a difference anyways. Those are lies. What is the truth? God says that I am joined with Christ, dead to sin, and alive to God. That's what God says. Now, if you believe that by faith, you are now to go and act like it, right? Act like that is true. Prove God to be true in your actions. How do you do that in practice? Here's the second command. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. This is the second command. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin reign. Remember, God has already freed you from it, but you can still choose to let sin reign in your hearts temporarily as a believer. And this, is, this text is saying don't. Do everything in your power to get away from that reign of sin in your body on this side of eternity. Whatever you do, don't give in to its sinful lusts. And uh, later in Romans, in Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 14, Paul further says this, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its what? To its, to its lusts. Don't give it an inch. Don't give any opportunity for it to lead you back into slavery. Take practical steps to remove that opportunity to sin from your life. If this sounds like a call to self-denial, that's exactly what it is. It's a call to take radical steps to deal with your sin. Don't take that route home past the bar. Throw away that computer if you have to. Throw away your smartphone if you have to. Whatever you do, throw off your sin. Act like the free man that you are, which is your birthright in Christ. That is your right in Christ. And finally, the third command, which is found in verse 13, it says this. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. See, the third command in response to our union with Christ is that we are to present the members of our body in service to God. The word instruments in this verse actually could be translated weapons. I think that's a better sense of the reading. You see, there's a war going on around you. Did you know that? There's a spiritual war that rages around you. Christ's kingdom is invading the kingdom of darkness, and it is taking it by force. That's what's going on around you. And the kingdom of darkness is desperately trying to hold its ground, but it can't. It's losing. 
And you and I, as Christians, are called to be soldiers in that war. When you were in your old state, you used all of your weapons, that is, all of the members of your body, to serve the side of unrighteousness with eagerness and with abandon, didn't you? But now, Paul says, in your transformed life, do the very opposite. Use that very same effort and eagerness you formerly used to pursue unrighteousness. Take that and use it to pursue righteousness. What does that look like in practice? It's not complicated. You can find a whole list in Romans 12 of what that is. I won't read it to you, but it includes things like devoting yourself to prayer, faithfully serving God's church with your spiritual gifts, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's what it looks like practically. Guys, none of this is hard to understand, isn't it? But we all know this is really hard to do. To continually present your members as instruments of righteousness requires, listen, continual and enormous sustained spiritual effort. And you will have to do it in the face of opposition, both from the external world, both from, both from the powers of darkness, and also from your internal remaining corruption. I mean, let's face it, sometimes we simply don't feel like doing things like presenting our body to righteousness, do we? We don't feel like that. Not all the time. And the truth is, this stuff is hard even for Paul. And, and he says that in Romans 7:19, which he says this, For the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. You see, that's his frustration. Elsewhere, Paul says that he has to beat his body into submission in order to win that battle. That's in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But see, that is what sanctification looks like. It's a war. If you want to live the way God commands you to, you are going to make yourself do hard things that you don't want to do. And you're going to deny yourself things that you want to do. That's what sanctification looks like. It's not glorious. People aren't going to be writing books about that. But that is what it looks like. So, how are you doing at considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God? Not letting sin reign in your body and presenting your bodies as instruments of righteousness. How are you doing at that? And again, this spiritual sweat, I just have to say again, is not an effort to work for justification. It's not what it is. It's simply following the command to bear fruit to God according to our kind. And as hard as the struggle is, it's not in vain. There is hope in the last verse of our passage this morning, in verse 14. Look at that verse. Verse 14 says this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see, this is God's promise. He switched from commands to promise here. See, God knows that the Christian life is not easy, but the promise is that, every, that, that children of God are, listen, guaranteed victory. Sin will not be the master over you. God is promising you will win this battle. You are no longer under the law, obeying as if your justification depended on it. You are now obeying out of grace, with a transformed nature and a new heart. Your sanctification will take spiritual sweat. But listen, the world you, fill in, you live in now, you trans got transferred into, is a world filled with grace upon grace. Grace unmeasured. 
more than enough grace to enable you to do what you need to do and to cover your sins when you fall short. Well, by now, I I hope Paul's main point is clear. The fundamental cause for sanctification is none other than a transformed nature. That's the cause of sanctification. And every kindergarten knows that you bear fruit according to your kind, right? That's every, every, every little kid knows that. So then it makes no sense for a believer to continue in sin. In fact, living in sin post-conversion is not just a bad idea for a believer. It is impossible for a believer. So if there is no difference between the quality of life between you and an unbeliever, then look, you have to consider, you may be deceived about your salvation. Maybe you haven't fully been transformed at all. But for those who are in Christ, God does command us to work hard towards our sanctification by first believing by faith that we are dead to sin and then taking practical steps to deny sin and put on righteousness. Not to attain some merit before God, but to eagerly bear fruit for God according to our new natures. Indeed, if we have been transformed, we cannot help but do so. And we will succeed. That is God's promise. So let me ask you for one final time. How aggressive have you been about sanctification? How well does your life fit with that of a picture of a transformed believer? I think we'll just close this morning by by reading uh, Philippians 3.12, which is uh, what Paul says um, that I think sums up the Christian experience well. Philippians 3.12 reads like this. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which, was, which also I laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brethren, let's press on towards that goal together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your scripture and for being so clear about this topic of sanctification and how we are transformed to become new creations. Lord, help us to by faith believe this and to understand that we are dead to sin and our new natures are such that bear fruit for righteousness. And then help us be eager to do that as a body, eager to use our gifts to serve you, eager to practice hospitality, eager to minister to the needs of the saints. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in Christ, and our justification is secure. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.